Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios and is sponsored by the Ford Foundation, now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. It's been a week since the Detroit uh, municipal elections, and we want to follow up and discuss what we saw happen on Tuesday, November 2nd in the city. Today, we will run down each of the races for you and hear about how a local group is organizing around the clock in the year to increase voter participation in Detroit. Joining us on the show today is Brandon Snyder. Brandon is the executive director of Detroit Action. Detroit Action is a nonprofit organization working toward building resident power in neighborhoods to increase participation in democracy, address the root causes of poverty, and spur thriving in communities. Brandon, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Thank you, Orlando. I'm finally on here while you're here. Yes. Well, I'm glad to be here. And I was just saying how nice the facility is, the, the Marlowe Stoudemire Center. And you're like, this is this is really, really dope. The the uh the uh this this studio is really dope. I am impressed. I can never go back to doing You uh, can't go back to the ghetto. Can't, can't go Zoom back, is can't, the can't ghetto. Go back to doing Zooms on the ghetto. <laughs> sitting, sitting at my coffee table. <laughs> Just trying, you know, trying to keep my dog quiet and answer questions. I'm never going back. I'm never going back. Well, I'm really, really happy to have you on. I am a fan of yours. And so this is it's really great to sit across from you because, you know, I for the longest time, Don, I thought Brandon didn't like me. He would come on every time I was out of town or not on the show. And I'm just like, dang, Brandon must not really mess with me like that. But yeah, today he said it, yes. Not, uh-huh. not at all. And, and, and said yes quickly. He did. Like I got you his phone number. Yes. And like in minutes later, you were like confirmed. And we were so excited because we wanted to talk about the election. And we had another guest, and it was going to be a great guest in the future. But we were left with this opportunity to talk yeah. to somebody about the actual election today, and you were the one. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm so, glad, and like I'm a fan of y'all work. You know, I am a big uh, proponent of uh, of getting my staff to read Bridge Detroit. Thank you. You know, we wow, uh, thank you. You know, my 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 former classmate from um, from grad school, Olivia Lewis, is one of y'all uh, reporters. Stop! Are yeah. you serious? Yeah, yeah. we wow. went. You should to ask her about. We went to Senegal for a grad for uh, for a class trip. Yeah, so we spent a week in Senegal and. You know, she had friends there, so we, we took we we did this project. She took me around. So Wait, that, she had friends in Senegal. Yeah, she, she knew. She, she, wow. had a, she had a homegirl that that uh, it does was not surprise me. And, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. But at all. that is the homie, and so lots and lots of uh, time I spend looking at the. Uh, the, uh, the write-ups that y'all do, you know, lots of time I get the chance to spend uh, reading her work and your work and, you know, seeing you on, on PBS and seeing wow. all of you, you know, so I'm, I'm a fan as well. Thank I'm a fan you. as well. From one east side to another, I'm a fan as oh, well. Oh, see, he I said see. the magic word. East side, baby. <laughs> yeah, see, east side, I love see. and support. Yeah. And, and here you were thinking, 
<laughs> he was not a fan. I'm like, and dang. Is. And they're just like, I can't believe somebody doesn't like me. No, right. so it's so funny. It's, this is hilarious. And Donna, I think you feel the same way. When people, Donna and I are honestly shocked when people come up to us and be like, oh my God, we listen to the podcast. Because <laughs> I think really? something in our brain tells us we only have like two listeners. I don't know what it is, right? And then people all the time walk up to us and we are genuine, like it's not fake. We're not like fake humble. We are genuinely like shocked when people <laughs> the, pod, the podcast has reached I, the, the, the episode that i was on last year i think i was out walking my dog i live in um on the north end and i'm walking my dog and i saw uh senator adam olier and he was like you know hey i listened to your episode of the podcast you know i'm a, I'm a subscriber i'm a listener i was like okay that's good. crazy and then, right and then you know kevin ryan at the ford foundation also was like you know hey you know i listen to it so y'all have a reach like yeah. this is this is it's a it's a place to be. So I'm excited. Oh, we are excited to have you here because you have reach. Yes, you do. And um, <laughs> we're going to get to that in a minute. I need to hear these stories. because I, know, right? I actually wanted to just call you up and ask you. I'm reading <laughs> social media and I read a story and I was like, hey, what? And I'm not trying to be nosy, but I'm really excited to hear that great things are happening with Detroit Action um, because you're doing the work that I've wanted to do that I know needs to be done. And every time we have these election debates and people start having these postmortems, I keep thinking, you know, the problem is that we're not dealing with root causes. Mm-hmm. We're not engaging mm-hmm. a whole group of people who don't believe in politics mm-hmm. anymore. And your job and what you've been doing mm-hmm. from the little bit I know, and you'll tell us more, is to really make politics relevant to the mm-hmm. people who need them most. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a fan in that respect. So um, I, I really we're going to get into it, but we yeah. want to we want to ask you first. How is the day finding you? How are you? The day is good. I uh, so my dog Keisha, who is like my your um, dog's name is Keisha? my dog is named Keisha. She has K H E Y dollar sign H A. So you know my. I, so she's a whole she's a whole character but uh you know so i've had her for eight years she's now becoming a um an elder dog so she has epilepsy mm. and so oh, no. you know occasionally you know she she's on seizure medications she'll uh you know she, she may have seizures you know just occasionally but in between time in the meantime you know she you know does normal dog stuff of like destroying things here and there and so i came home you know to like her in her normal spot, you know, in front of my TV uh, this afternoon, she was watching MSNBC. Oh my and god! I came home. She's related yeah. to you for real. <laughs> That's that is the channel that we keep it on. I came home and I looked over at my uh, my coffee table, and she had destroyed, completely destroyed uh, my phone charger, my computer charger, my laptop charger, and uh, destroyed. Uh, you know, a hat, which I was like, how did you find this like baseball hat of all the things? What like- did you do to make Keisha and mad? Keisha, I don't, did you I leave her Keisha, at home? Yeah, Keisha, see, this is long? the thing about it is pets got spoiled. Let's be honest. That okay. <laughs> the pandemic messed our pets up. I have a cat. Honestly, this cat. Donna, what's your home. cat's name? We have two, actually, Smokey and Dusty. Okay. Smokey Dusty <laughs> is the outgoing cat. Dusty left for like three weeks. Dusty was mad. And we, we got back because we went out of town and we he got went back. On vacation. He was like irritated. Like you stayed gone for three weeks. And we had people coming in to take care of him. Mm. But we were gone. And so Dusty left. 
You know, he yes, just, he I'm, said, I'm, I'm done. Out, I'm out. You can go. I can go too. I'm driving down the street and I look up, and there's a little cat. I said, "There's Dusty." I said, "Dusty," and Dusty turned and looked at me like, mm. <laughs> "And by the time I pulled in my driveway, Dusty was sitting at the front door like, "I'm back. Don't do that again." Yeah. <laughs> Keisha got an attitude with so you Keisha, like you've been going Keisha too long. Like, Keisha had an attitude, and so like we were trying to figure each other out at the beginning of the pandemic because you know I'm you know not so you the, just got her. No, I've had her for eight years. Okay. So, right, right. But we've never had spent like it's all like, that time like, together. Like, like She's any, like like any relationship. Like you're for we were for real on top of each other and like every day in and out during the pandemic. And so she had never spent you know days and days and days with me without like me not me going to work. So she I would be in I would you know be in my dining room on the phone and like you know you know how normal dogs want to like sit next to you and come yeah. on. And she was just going to the other room you're like all right look if you're gonna be talking about work this like i'm just gonna go ahead and do my right. thing. but you know but now now that you've been actually leaving the house keisha's like wait really a minute upset. i thought we worked something out what kind of dog is keisha all right so here's another funny thing so uh for years, I got her. I lived in Indiana for two years. I was doing uh, faith-based organizing, and so I, you know, I didn't really know a whole lot of people. So I got a dog, and the the folks at the Indiana um, Humane Society were like, you know, this is a puppy Rottweiler, you know. And so, so, so I so, love so, that. Oh so, my hold, hold on, hold on. So, so me and my friends were like, I don't think this is a Rottweiler, but, <laughs> we, but we, but you know, we'll we'll see when she grows. And so, over time, she grew. She was for sure not no Rottweiler. Oh, so man. She, she, so I had for years, like, you know, she might be a beagle. She might be a lab Labrador. And I've always wondered this. And uh, she has a black coat. She has a black coat, brown, black and brown. And so the thing that I've always wanted to be is like uh, Henry Louis Gates and figure out. Like, they have that. They have yeah. doggy DNA. So, stuff. so my girlfriend got me one for, for Christmas uh, nice. last year. And Keisha ain't no Labrador, no Rottweiler. <laughs> no, none of that. She's she's. 35% pit bull and like and like everything else sprinkled in. Wow. Well, you know, um, that reminds me of the person who was giving away those. The lady who said, remember the lady said that somebody was giving away the coyotes? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. Baby coyotes. It, no, it wasn't coyotes. It was, not, it was, it was hyenas. hyenas. I'm sorry. She said that it was a hyena and then it ended up being a false story. <laughs> but <laughs> that you, you I was like, they give it away hyenas. Like, you got a mutt. I got a, a a, a purebred mud, a purebred mud. Like she is a little bit of everything, and I'm just like, Come and on. you in love with her. But I would have been mad. Rottweilers are my favorite breed of dogs. I, I think that they are absolutely beautiful. They're go- and they're they're so loving. I thought oh I was my. getting a steal, yeah, from the Indiana Humane Society, yeah. and it was not not, yeah. not to be. Well, no. she stole your heart. She stole my heart. She stole, you know, she stole that's, your that's, heart. That's, that's, that's the best yeah. part of it. Her name, Keisha. I love it. Donna, how is this day finding you? How are you doing? Well, you, you know, got I'm some doing great news well. Today. I do. My mother came home today. She is at home. And can we get an applause for that? Yes. Woo! We've been. Yes. Thank the Lord. And, and, and Brandon, you would get this. She has been at this, um, in this rehab center. People are very nice and she enjoyed most of it, but they don't have MSNBC. <laughs> And she's like, you know what? Where are my people at? I don't know what's going on in the world. <laughs> CNN mm-hmm. is just not the same. So she, you, and Keisha mm-hmm. have a fate shared love for MSNBC. My mother mm-hmm. knows all of the hosts. And so I was just really happy. The most exciting part of it was I turned on the TV and she was able to watch MSNBC in her own bed. <laughs> Good, yeah. 
Yeah. I love it. I love it. And it's so good to see like and hear the relief yeah. that's in your voice that your mom is home. I know it's been a, it's been a long and tumultuous journey. Yeah. It's a journey into a world that I think we all need to know about. Yes. And that is um senior care. Healthcare yeah. for vulnerable disabled populations and also senior care. Um, we don't do a great job in our nation of that. You have some people who are amazing. The people at the Pace Center in Southeast Michigan who are at the um, the center right on McDougal are amazing. Mm-hmm. They've been wonderful to work with. They've been my partners in figuring all of this out. It hasn't gone perfectly smoothly, but they have really helped me advocate for my mother. Getting her home and the um, occupational therapist from Pace was, you know, a saint. Yeah. Honestly, the way he had the patience and he said, um, they had my mother in a wheelchair. He said, I can order her one, but I don't want her to have a wheelchair. She's going to walk. That's what I'm talking and about. An advocate. To hear yes. from somebody who is responsible for helping her walk, she's going to walk, is the most um, encouraging news I've heard in over a month. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm in a really good mood today, as you can tell. Really happy. Yeah. How about you, Orlando? I am, I am doing well. You know, uh, daylight saving time. Um, is upon us and so is the changing seasons and so my I, I don't know if the listeners can tell but I got a little bit of stuffiness in my nose my sinuses are trying to drain but I'm feeling I am feeling uh really really good and optimistic about um you know what's to come and what we're doing I love doing this this is this isn't work for me so I'm always in a good mood when I come in here it's oh, always me too. Great. yeah me too you know so. my favorite thing is talking and talking about politics is even yeah. more fun. oh yeah so we get to talk about <laughs> politics today but before we talk about top politics it's time for our new segment hot takes where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit today's hot takes are public private partnerships fueling Detroit's neighborhood comebacks this is by Olivia Lewis from Bridge Detroit Donna was say you oh this is your classmate right yeah. it's a really good story when i first read the headline i was like oh, <laughs> public private <laughs> partnerships because you know it really should be private public partnerships mm-hmm. where private entities are driving public policy yeah and basically Ooh. that's what you're saying right here in this article yes um we're only going to invest public funds which is interesting that we use terms like investment to describe government spending mm-hmm. um especially when there's no return like, what's the return on investment? Does the government ever get money back from the so-called people they're investing in? Mm-hmm. Or do they just get to keep it and mm-hmm. become richer and richer? Lord. But when you have private entities driving public policy, this isn't new. That's the reason why we had the redlining. That's the reason why we had banks refusing to do certain things. Our public policy said that you cannot have mixed race neighborhoods But a lot of times the people who were defining that public policy had come directly from the public private sector into the public sector to write the rules. And it all benefits a certain class of people. And so... Can I give a little bit of background uh, before you continue? Oh, yes. So uh, <laughs> Deputy Secretary Adrian Totman, uh, De- Deputy HUD Secretary Adrian Totman, toured Detroit last week uh, with media visiting some of the Strategic Neighborhood Fund um, uh, neighborhoods, including some neighborhoods here on the east side in Island View and the Greater Villages. And uh, the Assistant HUD Secretary said and emphasized the importance of public-private investment and said that government can't do it alone, Donna. Well, I mean, it's not just that, but I'm trying to find the quote where she said that um, if it costs increasingly more to produce housing, it results in fewer units being produced or rising rents. 
That's why funding for HUD is so important. No, that's not the part I want to get to. The point I, part I want to get to is where this HUD secretary said, we don't know. Um, she said local leaders should know who is moving into a city and avoid overcrowded areas. She said the community's voice should be prioritized in housing dis- discussion. She said it's the folks on the ground whose responsibility is to see what's coming, what's around the bend, what's the need. And so I'm going to ask you, um, mm. Brandon Snyder, okay. because I know this is your belly. Whip. I got the quote right here. She said, she said, if the city needs three and four and maybe five bedrooms, you know, my hope is that the local leaders will see that market, you know, and build to it. Go ahead. Donna. That was the quote, because what we're seeing is different. Yeah, the city I is think that's it. I think also I saw in there and I can't find the quote. I'm sorry. Yeah, like I said, I was just helping my mother get readjusted. I read this once and I meant to read it again so I could pull out this specific quote because the specific quote just reinforced this idea that the market was driving what the public investment should look like. Yeah, if you it costs increasingly more to produce housing, it will result in fewer units being produced or rising rents to make up for those additional costs. That's why funding through HUD is so important. HUD funds can be used to defray these increasing costs to a tenant while helping to keep rents low or to build more units. That is by Julie Snyder, who's the director of HRD here in the city. And you know, hats off to Julie. I don't blame Julie for this, but I do blame our public policy. Brandon, I was asking you a question. Yeah, I think the one thing I was going to say to that point, too, is that like you don't see actual demand being met and being, you know, catching up to what, you know, what they're advertising. So like so many of our member leaders at Detroit Action you know, talk about the need for uh, low income housing, not just affordable housing or just, you know, decent housing stock, period. And, you know, any conversation you have, housing is the number one issue, being able to move into a home, being able to have a home that is, going, you know, that is going to be, uh, you know, lead free, that's going to allow folks to, to move in and be safe. But yet what's being developed and what's being built are, you know, uh, you know, you know, homes that are, are in almost luxury. Like when you look on Kerchival and East uh, in West Village, you know, that new development, you see so many of the things that are being um, targeted, you know, uh, you know, towards in a more affluent class. So, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that comes out of that is like, you know, demand doesn't match what, uh, or or what's being built doesn't match what demand is from from the community. And then the other thing that, you know, I guess like at the heart of that of the story is that, uh, you know, when we use these pri- pub- private part public partnerships, as Donna said, you know, government is able to sort of abdicate their place in solving the problems of today. Like we're essentially saying that, like, we don't need to do it. Let philanthropy take care of it. We got it. And that never or let let these businesses take care of it. We got it. And that never actually solves it. Like you used a really good example about uh, banking and around, you know, the uh, you know, the, you know, the redlining like that was essentially what happened when government, you know, coming out of the, uh, you know, the uh, the baby boom coming, in, you know, into in towards expansion into the suburbs saying like, look, we can't do all this, even though we've given folks a GI bill and a bunch of stuff. Let's, let's let you, let's let you, uh, banks take care of it. And banks were like, look, we want to get affluent white folks to be in here. We weren't interested. If you allow markets to drive Mm -hmm. public policy, taking care of poor and vulnerable people is not marketable because it doesn't produce an economic return Mm -hmm. to the people who are trying to get it. You can't have that. When you built up the suburbs, when we built up public housing, you had um, FHA spending money to do that and FHA making decisions that certain types of resources would be restricted to whites only people. Mm-hmm. And that's partly to benefit the developers that were behind that policy. 
Um, we've had this, um, you know, predatory exclusion and then predatory inclusion. Come and on. now you have, you know, it, 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 Hope 6. Hope 6 happened in the early 2000s or actually the 1990s, 90s. 90s to early yeah. 2000s. And when Hope 6 happened, we 100% funded the demolition of housing. And then we expected public-private partnerships to rebuild housing that was going to rehouse all of these people. And it didn't. It accelerated a housing crisis. And we have to invest in people. And that means that we have to use government spending to address these needs if we want to have whole cities. And until then, Detroit is not going to grow in population. It doesn't matter how many studio apartments you build downtown, um, because <laughs> the reality mm-hmm. is that people are moving out from neighborhoods because of an unmet need for family housing, an unmet That's need for one. neighborhood yeah, housing. For real. And it is absolute neglect. But I'll say this also. We can't say that the city is not mapping to a need that the city has identified because the city has not agree to even measure the need for affordable housing. There's no study anywhere produced by the city of Detroit that says this is how many people are without homes right now. The University of Michigan and other research institutions are moving in and closing the gap and saying, this is what we think the needs are. But it's not coming from the city. It's not part of official policy. It's not baked into a HUD development plan. And therefore, it's not going to be served. Instead, we get... You know, these, again, these, we're subsidizing these units of housing that are not really for long-term Detroiters. Mm-hmm. Like this, uh, this Joe Lewis announcement by the Sterling group, but don't even, don't even get, don't even get me there. But I think you make an important, an important distinction and nuance. Uh, the city is always talking about affordable units and, uh, housing, uh, that they subsidize. Affordable is very different from low income. Yeah. And I think that we have to begin to also push that conversation. Where is, where, where Where is the place and conversation for public housing in the city of Detroit as well as that low income? Because it's very different. Well, the word word affordable has been co-opted. Yeah. It's been co-opted to disguise the real intent of government because gentrification is facilitated by so-called affordable housing investments. The reality is, again, that the amount of money it would take to build a three-bedroom home, a two-bedroom home. I remember when the Parker Durand project was being planned for Kercheville and Van Dyke. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. were told this is going to be deeper affordability. 50% of the units are going to serve people who are at 50% or less of the area median income. We're going to have two and three-bedroom units. I remember those conversations. I remember those promises. So I reached out to the Parker Durant, which is still under construction, mm-hmm. years after it started. And I said, hey, wait a minute, because I heard rumors that they changed, you know, um, changed direction. So I said, you know, we're interested in renting. <laughs> they said they are going to produce nine two-bedroom home units and 84 one-bedroom units in that apartment. Nine. Nine two-bedroom units and 84 one bedroom unit. So a family essentially what you are what you are stuck with if you want to move there is a two bedroom or nothing else. One of nine two one bedroom of nine units. Two bedroom units yeah. So nine families might get served. Those may be the affordable units. Nobody knows. So I said, Hey, I'm interested in pricing. How much will these cost? I haven't heard an answer yet. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're listening to our show. Maybe we're that popular and we'll find well, out. Well, no, the they- mayor says that families are moving. I, I told y'all last week or was it the week before I asked Mayor Duggan this question about uh, multifamily units that uh, in these new developments that the city is subsidizing. And Mayor Duggan contends that 
people with families don't want to live in multifamily housing. They're buying homes from the land bank and they're fixing them but up. That's and the only choice that we have. And, and, the, real- and, not, yeah. and the reality <laughs> Just- is the mayor is not listening to people mm-hmm. because the mayor has never taken the time out to assess the need. What the mayor does is give you pre-populated surveys with answers that you can only choose A, B, C, D, or E. And when he did the survey of how do, how do you want to use this funding for the ARPA funding, he didn't result- release all the results. Yeah. We the asked mayor- for it chooses not to know we foyer them it's a choice because there's too many people in the community saying this is what we're looking for and yet we'll get to this right now somehow the choices the mayor's making the people who are the ones leaving the city are not voting they vote with their feet so Ooh. seventy thousand people left that's a vote Let's let's move on. Democrat Sri Tanadar says he wants to move from state house to this, Congress. This, this is an example of people moving into Detroit. I don't understand why this is comedy to the two of you. You guys are this, laughing. This is an exa- we just talked about people moving out of the city. This is an example of people moving he into moved, Detroit. Like, so he came from Ann Arbor to run for his state uh, rep seat that he he has right now. He spent over three hundred thousand dollars on that campaign. He was a gubernatorial candidate a few years ago and spent over 10 million dollars of his own money on that campaign he is now saying and what i think is a a strategic move on his part the man ain't dumb uh that he wants to run for congress at a time where joe biden is getting ready to sign into law an infrastructure bill that rashida Tlaib voted against right and is being taken to task right and so many others from the progressive caucus taken to task for not voting on this uh, bipartisan and I say that with air quotes because air quotes, only 13 yeah. <laughs> Republicans crossed the aisle mm-hmm. to vote for this this bipartisan infrastructure bill right and so you have folks within uh, the Democratic Party who are more centered who are more centrist who are irritated with the likes of uh, Rashida Tlaib yeah. or Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez uh, and he makes this announcement on the heels of her coming under fire for not Voting for but that the infrastructure thing is bill that we're losing a congressional seat. We don't know which one, and it's it, it doesn't matter which one. Yeah, because if it's the 13th district, Brenda Lawrence can run at the 13th. It, it it does. You don't know, but you have two Congress people whose districts will probably be melded into one. Yeah, yeah. And I I would say that despite all of this, that Rashida Tlaib remains extremely popular Absolutely. because she is a fighter for the people and she, people know her. She shows up in the community, but even if she's not... And ask her why the, she voted no. And, and, she, and she can give you a very good explanation. She, that she voted no because of she believes that we had to vote for the Build Back Better bill before we did that because we have no trust in whether or not Joe Manchin and others are going to keep on moving the environmental the precautions and you know so, you know so social, she, more social she, programs she may, she had good reasons for yeah. it but i don't think the, the challenge for Sri Thanadar is there's no argument for him other than he's a billionaire, millionaire, whatever the hell he is there's no argument for him he's not the best representative i think it's silly i don't think he's going to win i think that him uh, announcing that i don't know well, no, no, no. Well, well, I think the one thing that is in his back pocket that 
supports his candidacy is his money he's a millionaire his money and that's and that's not saying that i like him that's that's his crutch to say that i I can run didn't i say this to you the other day i said my optimism sometimes wonders about what would happen if we like completely take money out of politics where would he stand i i I get that i think he still has a lot of hurdles to overcome i think that he does not have credibility in the streets i think that he has not had to campaign against somebody who has the knowledge? I think him trying to run as a moderate. We actually have moderate. Democrats. Does he have credibility not in the streets, but within the voter electorate? And not- I, I'm asking this question only because when I asked my grandmother a few years ago who she was voting for for governor, she was like Sheree, baby. And I was well, well, like, so, so, the, so the interesting thing about Sheree's race in 2018 was if you if you recall, you know, the, the Democratic primary, it was Gretchen Whitmer, Dr. Abdul El Saeed, and then Sheree running in third. And, you know, you can right. almost look at uh, a Sri Tanadar, uh, you know, talking point and pull up an Abdul El Saeed, a better talking point. And so what, you know, what was one of the really interesting things about Sheree's campaign was that it was almost a copy and paste of both yeah. Gretchen and Governor Whitmer and uh, Dr. El Saeed's talking points and, tr- and essentially Sheree t- trying to move himself to the left on things that Dr. Abdul will say it was pretty much on the but left. Y'all, I'm saying we could in, we could intellectualize it. No, we could talk and, about and, it and analyze I, it as and, and because think, we are who we are. But think, I'm talking yeah. about I just I, think that, you know, honestly, I don't I have to go back and look at the numbers. I didn't think he really made as much noise as he thought he was going to no. make. In, so I think that there were people who supported him. I don't personally know too many people who did. Um I I know, I know so who maybe supported him. I know folks who he worked on that campaign. People. And I was, was going to say, he, he ran a, he, you know, he spent a ton of his money in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. You know, they were doing very old school. We're going to give everybody who show up a shirt. We're going to give people food. We're going to do everything we can mm-hmm. to like, in, you know, increase name ID. One, one time, this is a Detroit action, this uh, story, is that he showed up to it. We were doing member meetings at uh, Matrix on Gratiot and Six Mile. And uh, he showed up to our member meeting with his full entourage and he showed up with a box of his books, his autobiographies, T-shirts, books, autobiographies. And he was just passing them out. And people want it. And people, people take people, it. People, I, people I, I get that. I, listen, I'll stand corrected. I don't think that Shree has enough crossover appeal to win an entire congressional district. I think he's won the race he can run when I think that he's gotten as far as he can. I do think that it's possible that Rashida Tlaib will be challenged, but I don't think it's going to be him. I don't think he has enough weight to really challenge for a congressional seat. He Mm. couldn't do it for the governor's seat. And I don't think he's going to do it for Congress. I think that he does have money. There's certain groups of people he can persuade like that. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the fact that uh, uh, the, the people who do vote tend to, be a little bit more astute politically mm-hmm. than those who don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is a national figure. Yes. And so when we talk about when we talk about money, it, we're, I'm sure she's not just getting campaign funds from the voter electorate in the state of yeah. Michigan. Yeah. She's a national figure yeah. and beloved. And, and by you know, a lot of folks. I, I don't need to truly uh, Rashida. And I know, you know, we are all, you know, fans of hers and, you know, and, you know, and have a lot of, you know, shared agreement on like you know her policy platform in, in certain respects but like i there is no way just for me brandon speaking like there's no way that uh sharif anadar is going to 
walk in and share my values and you know as you said put the work in and the street what do you mean brandon he says my priorities in congress would be to fight for public safety education oh, equity oh, medicare for all so paid family leave lower prescription <laughs> drug prices <laughs> universal <laughs> basic income clean air and water there's a difference between to me and I'll be honest with you, even in the gubernatorial race, as much as Dr. L said, a lot of good things to say, he had not really walked the walk. Yep. Rashida Tlaib has walked, walked that walk. walk, talked that talk, connected with people, supported people. She's helping people. And so what's surprising to me, and people don't understand this, people who are some of the, you know, the, the, the pundits will talk about her. But when we have her to a community event, people absolutely love her and thank her. And they know and she's fighting for them. To the you last know, person that's gone. And, she will talk to everybody. Yep. And she's as real as it can get. Like, I think for, for us, another Detroit action story, like a couple of years ago, you know, we had a shooting where one of our canvassers was killed on the doors. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, you know, down the street. Uh, and this, was hap- this happened um, the week before election day. And the, you know, I'm getting calls from friends and allies. One of those calls that night was from Rashida Tlaib. And then the next morning when I'm, you know, in our office and trying to figure out what the heck are we going to do? Are we going to run a GOTV program? You know, she's bringing me donuts. And in the meeting with us trying to figure out, like, what are we going to do this election day? Can we make sure that your staff gets, uh you know, therapy and support from access? So being able to walk that walk and being able to do that sort of constituency service and being able to tie that to um, values and policy is a thing that our friend um, Sheree just does not have, right. and no amount of money is going to be able to combat that. Yeah, it, she's it, a it, it, And the thing is that there are some of us who are still angry that Mansion and Cinema, or whatever her name is, have been able to do what they <laughs> cinema <consume>. cinema <laughs> cinnamon have been able to do. <laughs> Yes. Sometimes you don't even want to p- pronounce people's names correctly. Yes. I, I, I was reading something about oh her. She God. was just so upsetting to me. She called her cinnamon. <laughs> it's like uh, well, insecure with condolences. We just call her coriander. I called her coriander. Lawrence and coriander. Look out! We, we so, yeah, but, but I mean, there's people who are just angry at the fact that they have been able to hold the party hostage, to hold these bills hostage. I salute those six Democrats in the House who stood up and said, you know what, we're not going to roll over to you, Manchin. This is your bill and we are not going to roll over. And she didn't understanding the bill was going to pass. If the bill was really, if the dollars were on the line, who knows what her vote would have been. But the reality is sometimes you have to take a stand and say, not enough. I'm standing up for my community. The one thing you can say about her is she walks like she talks. She's a person who strongly believes things and she never, ever compromises on that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not mad at the vote. I, I thought that um, it was, you know, political strategy on his part to announce at this time where sure she's kind of taking a lot of heat in the media for voting now. Um, and yeah. I'm sure there's people who are his advisors who say, yeah. oh, this is really and, smart. And, and, yeah. and there are folks that are uh, are more sort of centrist, you know, and even folks who are Rashida haters who are like, look, we will back anybody. Let's get use this opportunity. But the reality is, just as Donna has mentioned, is like, you know, I, I sound like a rapper, but the hood is behind her in certain respects. 
And so oh yeah, she got the good. streets. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we're gonna move on. Listen, MSU staff files suit after termination for failing to get COVID vaccine. So I'm gonna make this one really quick. So two uh, former MSU employees have filed suit against Michigan State University because they were suspended and eventually terminated for not adhering to the vaccine mandate by a certain date. Right? Uh, the lawsuit actually states that by threatening adverse professional and personal consequences, MSU's directive not only directly and palpably harms plaintiffs' bodily autonomy and dignity, but it forces them to endure the stress and anxiety of choosing between their employment and their health. Now, I I think that there is something to consider when we talk about, you know, all of these mandates coming down and coming out from private companies, from public universities and things of that sort. I think it's going to be interesting, though, to see this battle begin. This is actually Donna's show, too. It's not just my show, Brandon. It's Donna's <laughs> show. And somehow she can't figure out how to silence her devices for her own show. All right. Uh, (laughs) But I think it's going to be interesting to see how these lawsuits play out um, in court. Right. And the decisions that the court will make, the the precedent, the the legal precedent that it will set. Uh, (laughs) She's grooming me. I wish I could see her. (laughs) Put the camera on Donna, uh, JG, so that people can see her. Um, uh, The legal precedent that these uh, court cases can potentially set and what that means for uh, the the public health and safety of Everybody, right, when we go into public spaces, when we go into universities, when we head into private companies, I still don't understand why as much information as there is out there about the vaccine, why people People choose to. People are mad that Big Bird got a vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're available for kids now. That Big Bird got a vaccine. It, it this is and you know people say oh this nation has gotten crazy it like we did crazy. not have a scopes monkey trial like we didn't have people who were trying to teach creationism in schools and don't want to believe i mean part of america is this kind of i don't know this mix of we just have a lot of things going on in our culture and in our nation. I don't really have enough time to even think it through. But, you know, they were talking about people like QAnon, Donald Trump, JF. They were looking for JFK to come back. Most of my life, people are waiting for Elvis to come back. What, what in the world? In the streets, we, uh, we looking for Tupac. Right? <laughs> like, he's not really dead. He's just hiding from Jada. It's like people. <laughs> so, people. People have said. Oh that. my god! Somebody. I'm hot. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, people. We are just. We are superstitious. We have all of these oh. things going on, and then we also have a medical establishment. That allow people to get addicted to these um, opioids mm-hmm. by telling people they weren't addictive. And you have a whole nation that's also contending with a medical establishment that lied to them and allowed the corporatization of medicine to undermine not just health, but the lives. I mean, you think of the number mm-hmm. of lives being lost and the, the, the children being lost. So I think that. It's hard, but I think that we have so many broken pieces to our culture that we really need a cleanse. Mm-hmm. And the um, 
COVID-19 really is exposing the fault lines of that culture of people who just don't trust government, period, of people who don't trust doctors because doctors have misled them. And then you also have this far right that sometimes believes in bodily autonomy and sometimes wants to send women to prison for life unless they can prove that their child was not aborted, you know, if they have a miscarriage. I mean, so it's it's not shocking to me. It's, it isn't. I just think that as these uh, cases make their way through the courts, I think it's something that we all need to watch, um, especially as we go about our daily lives, because I think those of us who believe in science and who believe in being safe will have to pay attention yeah. uh, to what these courts are are saying. So. And, and I would say, too, just, you know, as it's like not a court observer or, you know, a legal observer is like, you know, the makeup of our uh, Supreme Court and most of our federal courts. Don't favor the people like Donald you. Trump got three appointments to the Supreme so, Court. He got three. I mean, very listen, hard. Yeah. This, I mean, again, this the Supreme Court. We treat the Supreme Court like it is a bunch of biblical elders. <laughs> um, you know, the, the the twelve disciples. These are not the your twelve disciples. disciplines. These are these people are the same people. I mean, look at the history of the Supreme Court decision making. That has Dred Scott decision. Mm -hmm. Look at the Plessy versus Ferguson, Ferguson decision. Yeah. yeah. And every other kind of decision in between. So for me, it's almost as though justice has nothing to do with legal, uh, the legal structure of America. Mm -hmm. America was founded in injustice. And we've had injustice ever since. And sometimes the courts get it right. And sometimes the courts don't. I think those of us who have strong sense of justice have got to fight for what's right, regardless of what the courts say, regardless of what the laws say. And I'm not saying break the law. I'm saying fight for what's right, because laws can be changed. Minds can be changed. But justice remains justice, regardless of the law and the mindsets that allow unjust injustice to prevail. That's a great button on that conversation. That's going to wrap up Hot Takes. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. So for our feature discussion this week, we are talking to Brandon about the outcomes of last week's municipal elections. And we have we have so much to talk about. But Donna wants to ask this first question because oh, she got yeah, Donna. I got questions. Uh, no, listen, <laughs> if Detroit action is blowing up, right? Okay. If, if what you like, trust what we're reading that. about on social media, I'm like listening to your post, reading your post, like, ooh, I want, and I'm waiting for the rest of the information. So, can you tell us what's going on? Yeah. So, I, I just take a step back. So, um, I am now actually the uh, co-executive director at Detroit Action. Um, in August, we uh, introduced Jennifer Disla, who's my um, co-executive director, who's our former um, organizing director, who comes from. 10 years of, uh, you know, labor organizing in the Midwest at SEIU, you know, won a, um, you know, campaign in Missouri, um, St. Louis uh, at Express Scripts, which is a, a um, you know, one of the, a manufacturer and also got her start on the Justice for Janitors campaign, which is, you know, a famed campaign um, in SEIU lore around making sure that janitors at many of their uh, service properties were being unionized. So really excited to have her and be a part of the, uh, the organization. Um, but, you know, Detroit Action, we are, um, as I like to joke and call ourselves, we're a union for the hood. Like, you know, our uh, our work is about building power for working class black and brown folks here in Metro Detroit. 
Um, we work on issues around jobs, housing, um, public education, uh, criminal justice, um, and democracy. Um, our work is, uh, for some of some folks know us as, uh, formerly as the Detroit Action Commonwealth and some, uh, as, and others that's like good jobs now. We realigned mm-hmm. and relaunched ourselves. Um, and, you know, as like to think of it as a marriage with some of our members from both of those organizations as Detroit Action in 2019. And so, you know, our vision around the work that we do is about how do we create, uh, a Michigan where everybody has a th- the freedom to thrive, where mm-hmm. everybody has an opportunity to really be able to live their fullest and truest selves. And the way we do that is through, you know, neighborhood community organizing um, and um, civic engagement. So, you know, I like to joke when I talk to like funders and other folks is that like think of like an old school car, like, you know, we in Detroit. And so like you got an old school like uh, Monte Carlo and on the outside it's real clean and it's, you know, and so that's sort of like how we think about our organizing is that, we, you know, we do a lot of the traditional stuff that you think about community organizers. You know, we do issue work, you know, committee meetings, one to ones, you know, the sort of like petitioning and stuff. But on the inside, we got a souped up engine. So we, you know, run a super pack. We've got uh, we do we, we run a strong narrative and comms program. We've got uh, a, dig- a strong digital program that is able to like reach people wherever they are, both literally and figuratively. We um, do a lot of cultural organizing, which allows us to engage folks using the arts and activism and a lot of things that's really designed to meet people in the particular moment. And so, like, uh, the theory of change behind that is that, like, we want to be able to be a vehicle or a political home that allows anybody to come in and really be able to, you know, a place where they can grow, develop their political voice in this political home and be able to create a better, you know, Detroit for in a better Michigan for all of us. Hmm. Okay, so the news. Are you breaking news on there? No, I mean I thought that there was a a, a significant growth in your budget. So, so break the news. So um, let's see which 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 piece of my. (laughs) Well, I mean this is good news. So we so we're we're all in nonprofit spaces, and it matters. So we are. I guess the, the the piece that um that I, you know we should talk about a budget in budget is like you know so we've started out you know I've been the ED of the, of our iterations for the last four and a half almost five years you know we've been able to grow our budget you know as a um you know as an as an as a uh you know as an organization when I started in 2016 we had like less than seventy thousand dollars in the, um in the bank you know. Um, last year during the elections uh, between our C3, our 501C3, our 501C4 and our um, super PAC, you know, we had close to six million dollars that we were able to run. Can, can we get an applause button there? <laughs> I wasn't ready. I told you. you know, this is this is big news. You know, I'm we, so excited about that. And, and, you know, this year we were able to run, you know, we, you know, elections ebb and flow around how our money. Is. So this year we were able to run a um, a political program. With um, you know, for um, the the elections out of our super PAC, you know, we're about like half a million dollars. So, like, we think <laughs> about flippantly say, you got a real case of MNS. Trevor Shorter <laughs> says, uh, get rid of the modest Negro syndrome. Right. I mean, geez. exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. But I, but I think like what 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 I try to like steer away from is that like you know it's we're, we're on we're a non-profit space so you know it's hard every dollar is hard earned and so oh, i think you better know you've it. earned it and, and, and nobody's questioning that and, 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 but the fact is that you got it and i think that that gives people hope yeah they're doing the right thing fighting for the right people can 
you know, that you can generate support for that. Yeah. And I think the thing that I'm, I'm most proud of is that, like, you know, last year, you know, all of our dollars come from, you know, philanthropy, labor, individual donors. But last year coming out of the, um, you know, the pandemic, we had about 682 uh, individual donors. That's, so that's people who legit. gave, you know, anywhere from one dollar up that's to a thousand dollars, you know, to our organization because they believe in like, you know, how do we talk about how do we reshape democracy in our state is through the voices of black and, and that's the votes. support like that's that's the system man congrats yeah. how so how can people plug in before so, we move on to the election stuff so the easiest way is to plug in we are on all the social medias it's the most vibrant as where we are on the social medias um so you can follow us on um on facebook at detroit action organizing on instagram and t- twitter as well as tiktok at detroit underscore action and then on our website at DetroitAction.org. Now, where's your office? So uh, we are right next to the Packard plant, you know, in that uh, space. On Ooh, there was some news about the Packard plant last week. We didn't we didn't do that in hot takes. But I remember Fernando yeah. Palazuela. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They, 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 well, so our office, 1600 East Grand Boulevard, we do meetings. We do a number of different things out of there. They actually. I love that you're on the east side. Yeah, they were actually, the, uh, the folks who owned the Packard plant were actually evicted. And so we took up another one of their offices in the uh, building. So awesome. Great. <laughs> I love it. All right. So let's talk about about a voter voter turnout i cannot say voter sometimes uh detroit saw a turnout of a little over 18 percent. there are some who count who contend that out of 637,000 residents per the last census count that is being challenged by the mayor and congresswoman Tlaib, that having over 500,000 registered voter voters in Detroit just isn't possible. What say you guys? And is Detroit action working to get to the bottom of this? So we haven't fought around this. The one thing I will say, um, and I saw a post that Donna made around like, it's not possible to have 500,000 voters in the city of Detroit. Cause that would mean like every man, woman, and child would be, uh, you know, would be, uh, you know, it would be registered to vote. So I think that there are some challenges around like how we have, you know, goes back to data and our clerk and all these things. Like, how do we, how are we counting folks? You know, how are we making sure that we have, you know, an accurate number of who still lives in Detroit? You know, and what and whatnot, because it just doesn't make sense. And I think the numbers probably really, you know, on the city's website, report, it says it's like 18 percent turnout, mm-hmm. probably like closer to 12. You think it's lower? Yeah, I think it's probably like 12. No, if we if we purge the, the, the roles, I think it would go get, up. I think it would high, go up. Yeah, yeah. higher, uh, higher. turn. Yeah, you're I right. Think, I think it would go up. Here's what I think. I think that every adult in Detroit is not registered to vote. OK. We wouldn't have voter registration drives if every adult in Detroit was registered to vote. We have fewer than 500,000 adults in Detroit. And one of the things is there are rules. Like if someone dies, you can't just knock them off the rolls. There's a process you have to go Mm -hmm. through. Somebody moves away. There's a process you have to go through. And Detroit has lost more population than most other cities in the nation, Mm -hmm. which means that Detroit's roles are probably more inflated than most other cities in our community. And so if I I looked at it and I said, what if you had like 60 percent of, say, 475,000 votes or something like that? And the role, the, the number of real voters is closer right. to say 350,000. Now we're talking about somewhere between 24 and 
And that's in line with big what's happening cities, other big cities. with the, the even the suburbs. Yeah. So when people do that, it tends to suggest that black voters in Detroit are irresponsible. And do I want more people coming out to vote? Absolutely. Do I believe that there's people who need to be engaged or disengaged? Yes. But I think the narrative I keep hearing from all of these pundits is why aren't Detroiters voting? Why aren't people anywhere voting? Because people have lost faith in elections in democracy, and it shows up in our community. But the fact that we can't get a handle on how many voters we have here really speaks to something that um, is a data problem. And then, you know, I, I'm not certain that we have a data whiz and act, in the it, clerk's office. And, and Kat Star, if Kat Stafford were here, she would say, ask the Detroiter, like ask the person. I mean, we we who have platform, we sit around and we talk and we guess and we we convey messages that we hear. Yeah. But uh, let's hear firsthand from the person uh, who who made a choice not to vote. We sent out a poll. Bridge Detroit sent out the poll, sent out a poll ahead of the election about election preparedness. And more than half of the people that we that were responded to our poll half of them 50 percent, said that they do not plan on voting in this election that means that they knew that an election was coming and they made a conscious decision not to vote how 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 are we having conversation with that population but since we're talking about voter turnout let's talk about the clerk's race really quick because one of the main offices responsible for turnout voter engagement and experience is the clerk's office denzel mccampbell challenged uh, incumbent janice winfrey for the clerk seat denzel came up short by 38,000 votes. There was no forum. There was no debate really um, for that race. What happened? And well, what is happening? Well, well, so two things. One to your original point to the point um, Donna was just making is that we can and we should be turning out and mobilizing every man and woman, not the children, to um to go vote. Like we have all of the tools for good governance in place around automatic voter registration, around same day voter registration, around um, no reason absentee, uh, you know, these are things that other states dream about. You know, I can go to the city clerks or I can go to my polling place on election day or to, you know, to a satellite office and register to vote that day. That's right. And so these are things that are tools that are good governance strategies. The problem is that we have a lack of will in advertising and create and using these skills, uh, these tools to scale. So like when we and, and that problem rests squarely at the city clerk's office. And so and we talk about election preparedness, that that's a problem of the city clerk's office. And I think like one of the challenges that we think about we hear um, when we hear stats like the one you just mentioned and like through our conversations is so many people didn't even realize that you have we have elections every single year in the state of Michigan. And so that is a problem of being able to make sure that we have an office of the clerk that is being prepared as being active and being and being almost an activist to make sure that people are aware of the tools that they can use. And I think that the challenge that we run into with Denzel and with others like Garland, you know, I was on Garland's campaign in 2017. And the problems that we run into is that it's a, it's hard to beat an incumbent. Like if you if you in that seat, you know, you almost got to you know pry you out of it. But then the other challenge is that you know, until we make the argument to actually train and develop and have conversations on with folks around what they want to see their elected officials do and, and what that person's responsible for and connect that to values and to actual things that we want to get out of it. People aren't going to people aren't going to be mobilized. You talk to a person, they're like, why do I need to bother in this election? Well, until you make it plain and simple, but, until you connect it to what they care about, it's hard. But it's hard to connect it to what they care about. And we had a mayor's race. 
And neither candidate was really talking about housing mm-hmm. people who are homeless. Neither mm-hmm. candidate was really putting forth a specific detailed plan for mm-hmm. here's how I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. If I'm living in squalor, if I'm living in a home, what, what 38,000 homes, according to one U of M study, are dangerously in, dis- in dangerous disrepair, mm-hmm. and I'm living here, what is my... You know, you know, my enthusiasm, what is my loyalty? What is my sense of connectedness to Detroit? I'm just trying to get by. Yep. You, when you vote, that's a statement of optimism that I'm going to do something to either change my condition mm. or hold on to my condition. We have a whole lot of people who have no hope. And what we do is we beat up on them and we think, okay, if we just tell more about how the system works, the system is not working for them. We had $600,000 in overtaxation, but nobody came up with a specific plan and said, here's how we're going to deal with it. And if they did, it was not shared. The other thing is people were campaigning this past season. People were not campaigning. (laughs) There were people who who called themselves campaigning, okay? They would go to a barbershop and they talk here, but people are not really congregating for public meetings of that type the way that they wouldn't during a normal election cycle because of COVID-19. And so you have people speaking in echo chambers, okay? Denzel's echo chamber loves Denzel. But outside of his echo chamber, nobody even knew who he was. How do we transcend our group of people who love us? What you saw was that at the city council level, which was a level where people were in a more localized race, you saw a lot of activism and a lot of change at that level. And even in, you know, so I think that it's helpful for us to think through how do we penetrate hopelessness how do we let uh, raise up a sense of understanding that if you vote for me this is what i'm going to do for you yeah well, well one way that we talk about it at detroit action is like you know the actual flip on that is that we're not talking about you know you know we are talking about the system is broken and the fact that it's not just you that's feeling it that it's a, all of us and that we band together and we solve it you know by coming together building community and actually making demands and holding folks accountable last year we did a focus group with this group called Hitch Strategies, which is like a premier organization that does um, uh, voter polling of uh, communities of color, um, you know. And one of the things that they talked about when we uh, did our our focus group of, of black Detroiters, so, we, you know, black women over 40, black uh, black men over 40, black, black women and men under 40, is that people want to see somebody hold folks accountable. People want to see someone... Uh, and, you know, hold elected officials accountable. People want to actually be able to challenge that. And people want to actually see um, politicians deliver. And that's one of the things that when you talk, when you hear folks and you talk in and, and, and some folks that are elected, it just doesn't happen. And for us, when we think about like our, our method and our theory of change, you know, it, it really goes back to, you know, if I'm living in squalor, if I'm living in homelessness, how do I get you in front of the mirror? So that way he feels you and has to look you in your eye and says, this is what I'm going to do about it. This is the policy, not, not not the nuance of, yes, I believe in housing justice, but this is the nuanced housing policy that you just said and your crew just said that we're going to work on and deliver. And if you don't, then this same person that I'm looking in the eye is going to show up to your office and it's going to be 30 of us next time. So that, that's our sort of theory of change is actually turning that 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 frustration into anger or, and turning that into activism. Well, I, I think that that's important. Absolutely. 
I also think it's important to have candidates who are running for office on those things because yes. what you get is you get the people plan. Yep. And you don't even use S's anymore. The people plan. That's I'm, it's a pet peeve of mine. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why not the people's <laughs> plan? The people plan. You get the And that's people. so weird in a place like Detroit because we love we the letter love S. S's. I, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it, but it's, it almost felt like Myers, you, you were. Kroger's, it, Target's. So yes. Exactly. I, I throw an S at, at my ears, okay? Everything. Come on now. So maybe that's the reason I'm missing the S and the people's plan. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but every time I hear it, but you get that. You get pandering, yeah. okay? You get somebody yeah. saying, okay, we're going to spend $30 million on fixing up homes and the renew housing plan. And that sounds like a plan because people don't know what $30 million yep. is. Yep. And that sounds like a lot of money to somebody who doesn't have $3,000, right? But the reality is it's not. And so I think, you know, maybe it's, I, I think we need candidates. Mm -hmm. We need really strong candidates who are going to be, make it plain, make it simple and make it clear. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. This is where I'm going to find the money and you can trust me. Yeah. And I think if we had candidates to do that, because it has to start at the top of the race, a clerk is really hard position to get people motivated for you almost have to be running against the it's, clerk. it's wonky it's like who knows what their clerk does but, who knows who their clerk is you know what is their? you know the, what is what is your clerk responsible for and that's that's one of the challenges no doubt but what you saw with the city council elections is you saw people saying i want the mayor held accountable well let's talk about that can, can if i can try to facilitate mm -hmm. this conversation uh let's break down um the mayor's race. So we, so we had a conversation about trying to increase voter turnout. Let's talk about the voter electorate in the city of Detroit. Mayor Duggan cruised into victory, obtaining over 69,000 votes and challenger former deputy mayor Anthony Adams grabbed 22,000 votes. What does this say about the Detroit electorate and their affinity, if you will, if we can call it that for Mike Duggan? Like, he's popular with the electorate. I don't know if he's popular. Okay. I know. I believe that people believe he's competent. Mm -hmm. And I think that people have lived through incompetent governance yeah. in the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. I think people believe that he can keep Detroit out of bankruptcy. I think people believe he can keep Detroit out of emergency management. And so competence becomes the biggest thing that you want from your mayor. And I think that if you're going to challenge him, you've got to demonstrate that you are equally competent and you have good ideas. I think that you cannot have a laundry list worth of things that you're going to do. I think that you have to be very focused in what your campaign is saying it's going to do. And you've got to hit a nerve. And quite frankly, I think this his opponent's campaign came up short. Yeah, I, I, I really agree. And I think the one challenge that I have. Um, with the Adams campaign, you know, so it's really hard to run a race. You know, you don't want to dog on people of the week afterward. But the real challenge that I have is that, you know, you have to be in it. You have to be able to if you know that your opponent is going to be raising um, is going to be raising, you know, tons and tons of dollars. You got to be able to come up either comparative or you got to bring the people power. And we didn't see either with that either. And I think when you look at like the spending, you look at like some, you know, Campaign strategies I didn't necessarily agree with, like on like not using digital, not spending a lot on digital, you know, not using, um, you know, Bruh. The, you know, were, I went through the campaign yeah. finance reports for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I have to be honest with you, my oh. money would have been on a social media campaign that generated funds and that went viral. Yeah. Okay. 
I would have messages that got to people, but the you know I saw spending on billboards, and I don't yep. recall having seen a single billboard. So yep. I'm like, maybe I was just driving to the wrong communities. Did you see a billboard? I saw billboards in February, and 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 like for folks that run like races, you know that like in February or anybody, you know that February nobody's paying attention to the election. Nobody's looking at the election. Nobody even the people aren't even thinking about only thing people are thinking about summer is, you know, when they're going on vacation in November, what they're going to be thinking about for Thanksgiving. And so to spend on and this is, you know, to again to spend on billboards just, you know, goes back to the question that you were or the point you were just making, Orlando, is like, are you in touch with the actual electorate and like what and how they get their information and where they get their information? We spent we spent about twelve thousand dollars. You know, you can look it up on um, the Secretary of State on our on our um, super PAC, and we spent that money on like ads for Nicole Smalls on using um, Hulu, using Hulu and YouTube, and and we y'all and yeah, we, and, you, and we that's got, crazy. And, and we know that because I got, saw one, and we know that we got one, you know close to like one point three million impressions, and so more money and spending more money smartly. Is how you win, especially in the pandemic. So well, let me. Can I add this bit of nuance, Donna? Yeah. Um, like I was, I was looking at some polls and I was looking at some national trends, and the uh, and this trend I think is true also for Detroit that people who you know vote, especially in the municipal elections, tend to be uh, more secure, more optimistic, and more upwardly mobile, more educated. Mm-hmm. That's the and I think the voter electorate uh, in the city of Detroit mm-hmm. be, sort of looks like that. Is 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 Duggan li- what what is how what okay Where? how is Duggan resonating with the electorate that Anthony couldn't get like what well, is he what, saying that Anthony couldn't say Well I mean again it's not he's the incumbent mm-hmm. If you're living in one of the strategic neighborhoods you're happy your, your property value if you own a home mm-hmm. and this is you're more likely to vote your property values have gone up you got street lights and they're picking up your garbage on time and all of those basic things your commercial strips may look better and so if the argument is wait a minute you've got to spend in other places then you've got to figure how to pull out voters from other yep. places okay because those people are fat and happy okay yep. this is when you have a whole strategic neighborhood focus for your campaign and you say i'm going to invest in 10 neighborhoods it's kind of smart because those may be where most of your voting public lives and so they're seeing Mm -hmm. and realizing the benefit of what your investment now you've got somebody else coming in now how do i know this guy is not going to stop that i mean you know people complained about livernoy until livernoy was done and now all of the shop owners on livernoy Love what happened mm-hmm. on Livernois. If you live in Sherwood Forest, you probably like it. If you live in the Bagley community, you probably like it. University District. So you have to think through how to win over those people. I think maybe you can't, but I think that there's ways that you can because there's fault lines in anybody's campaign, but you've got to figure out what that is. And the first thing you've got to do is reassure all of those people who think I'm doing better as a result of this mayor, that you will not abandon them when you're in office, yep. but you have no message for them. You have no nothing. If I can get more likes on a post I do on Facebook <laughs> than somebody running for mayor, we yeah. got a problem here. Because yeah. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm moderately well liked, but I'm not Eric Thomas well liked. You know what I mean? I'm not. <laughs> people, people, oh, I really like what you say, but Eric Thomas goes viral. I mean, the mayor has Eric Thomas on yeah. his team, but there's other people he could have put on his team. Who was his campaign strategist? Now, I'm not trying to be mean, but here's the thing and the, why I get so passionate about it. Because somebody could look at this and say, you know what? 
Mayor Duggan is inevitable. He can have this seat as long as he wants it. Nobody can take him on. And my thing is you can, but you have to take him on. Be smart if you're going to try. And what I didn't see was smart in terms of campaign. Now, he's a very intelligent man. Who's on the bench? Who's uh, building the bench? so, so, So to both of those questions is like, how do you penetrate the noise? How are you actually like having conversations that actually penetrate the noise and, you know, what I was told by somebody a couple of years ago is that the average voter thinks about or, you know, and so most of all of us in this room are probably our listeners are not the average voter. So like but the average voter is thinking about elections for seven hours to- cumulatively in, in total as they're getting ready for their election. That's cumulative throughout the year. And so how do you penetrate the noise to make sure that you're telling a story that resonates, that you're having a narrative that resonates with them and that you're actually connecting to like what you were saying, Donna, just a moment ago about like that you're making smart policy decisions that actually reflect in people's lives, especially in a municipal race where you can point to, oh, hey, my trash isn't getting picked up or, oh, oh hey, my lights aren't getting on. And I'm a person. Am smart. I allowed to talk about Angela Kellaway yet? Well, let's let's go there. Let's go there. Let's look at the let's look at the let's head over to District the, 2 where Angela Kellaway upset incumbent Roy McAllister by <laughs> obtaining almost 2000 more votes than uh, Councilman McAllister. Residents in that district have spoken. Donna, what are you contributing that to? I mean, she had a natural constituency. She's well-liked. She's well-connected. She came in. She was smart. And what she was able to do was convince people she was going to do something very different. She had beautiful campaign materials, mm-hmm. and she had a message. And I'm also heard from residents in District 2 who are like, I'm really I've been hearing about go. that for like yeah. three years where people are like, who's <laughs> going to run over? <laughs> what did you say? People have been saying for years of like, who's going to run him against Roman yeah. yeah, Well, yeah. you know, I heard some people say they were surprised he didn't make it. I wasn't surprised. Yeah. But I think that the reality is that he voted with the mayor more often than not. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that tells me if you're widely popular, where are your coach strings? Why are the people who vote with you, the people who lost yeah. and the people who came in are people who are believed to be people who would challenge you for the most part. I think there is a popularity. I think that there is a certain amount of respect that he is probably owed in terms of his competence and his ability to make the trains run on time. But I think in terms of policy decisions, what people want from their, their council people this time was somebody who was going to stand up and have an independent voice. And Angela Calloway is one who did, but she's also someone who had a natural network. If you're planning on running for any type of high office in the city of Detroit, there's things you have to convince people of. And quite frankly, and I don't mean this to in any kind of way, but you spent all of this money on Hulu and you got all those impressions and your candidate came in well, yeah. We well, let's, you know, talk let's, about, let's, let's talk about let's the at-large city council one. race. Yeah. The main contenders yeah. in that race were incumbent Janae Ayers, Nicole Small, Mary Waters, and Komi Young Jr. Komi Young and Mary Waters were the top vote getters, edging out incumbent Janae Ayers. Uh, was this an upset? Um, of course. Of yeah. Mary Waters, yes, yes, of Mary, course. yes. But um, I was to, to that Mary Waters pulled out. Yes. Mary what uh, and beat be, Janae yes. or beat Nicole? Beat Janae. Okay. Beat Janae. We knew she could beat Nicole after the primary. That she was expected, I think, to meet to beat mm. Nicole based on the primary results. Janae, not so much. But Nicole was a public official, well known and very well liked in some quarters, and she had a lot of support from grassroots activists, and yet she came in not a close fourth. What happened? So I, you know, because of like, you know, just a quick primary and like 
campaign finance. You know, we don't coordinate with the candidate as a super PAC or a C4. So just, just no, for, no, just no, for I this, understand yeah. that. So like I haven't done an autopsy of their campaign or what, the, what looks like, you know, what looks like on the inside. But I would say for us, you know, like social media and these things aren't foolproof. They do rely on, you know, folks engaging on the back end, folks building the sort of constituency that you're talking about, the coalition of the willing, and also, you know, raising money and doing all the sort of like mechanics, you know, the fundamentals. I think for like, um, you know, for the Mary Waters, um, you know, constituent, you know, is, is sort of the example that you gave with Angela Calloway is that like, you know, built in constituency, people well, like, you know, people have a name, you know, have a name, familiarity with like, them as being a progressive in the community from years past. And, um, you know, Coleman, Coleman has, you know, a hundred percent name ID in the city of Detroit. Like there's no way in the world that like there's someone who doesn't haven't, hasn't heard the name. So I think that you're, you know, you have to assume going into a citywide race that he's the front runner. And then you have to assume that like everybody's fighting for second. And with Mary Waters, you know, being an activist, being, a you know, having that built in name, having that built in network, you know, it was, you know, much more and stronger than what uh, than what Nicole had and what she was building. I think that she's a um, a candidate that people like and has lots and lots of grassroots activism, activist um, cred. But I think that, you know, in comparing the two, you know, it was essentially, you know, very similar candidates, very similar bases. And, you know, it gave out. Can I ask you a question, though? Mm-hmm. Um, because I've also heard people who don't like her. Yeah who feel as though she can be um, belligerent and that during the, the um, charter commission, you know, she could be kind of loud. She could be. And so if you're on her side, you love it. Yeah. But if you're not on her side or trying to make a decision, you're trying to make a decision. There's people, I think sometimes who wonder whether or not you would have a return of some of the Monica Conyers name calling stuff like that. I heard that from some people. And so um, although there are many people who thought she, really highly of her, I think there were some people who questioned her leadership temperament. Do you think, did you ever hear anything like that? Um, You know, I'll preface this and say that, you know, I've been cussed out on Facebook by her. So <laughs> I joke, but like, you know, the, uh, the... I think we all have. We all have. At one point at one or point another. Time, but, <laughs> but, 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 but being serious, you know, for a second too, is like, you know, the, our members who endorsed her looked at her and respected the fact that she was, to, you know, stand up and fight for them and fight, you know, and stand up against billionaires. And she was the person um, in the citywide slate who had a clear um, agenda, you know, a clear she, agenda, she and clear, anti, you know, wanted. corporate accountability yep. agenda. And so a lot sure of folks did. stood up and, and wanted to support her because, of that, you know, that clearness and crispness of what the agenda Absolutely. was. And I think that, like, you know, all of those sort of like personality things is, you know, it's unfortunate because, you know, at the but end does of the, day, the you super PAC think about that? Does the super PAC think about likability and temperament and and, you know, when when putting money and resources behind a candidate? And is that something that, you know, campaigns think about? So. Our program really was about like who would deliver us, who would deliver for us on issues, you know, all the personality, all of the, you know, I, you know, some people, I don't like cloning because his mama's in the room, all this type of stuff is, it's not useful because at the end of the day, it's like who will deliver for us. Right. But is it a political reality though, that we can't ignore that, you know, people want to like the per it's 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 a reality. People want to like mm-hmm. the person that they're voting for. They want a temperament that is productive. They you know what I mean? I like think, I think there is 
a re- that's a reality that that happens. I think going back to like Donna and your point though is like we're voting for people are voting for Mayor Doug and they may not even like him. They're just like, look, he's competent. Right. He'll do what but, we. Have. But but the question is, can you deliver? Right. So if you're a city council, you're one of nine. Mm-hmm. The only way for you to deliver is to get the other folks on city council to vote with you. Yeah. And so I think there is a question about city council getting quagmired in the same way that you saw the charter commission getting quagmired, where it felt like nothing got done for a while. And then what did get done didn't pass. Yeah. And I think, and it, it lost badly. And I think that, you know, I was watching, um, was it let it rip? And she was on there with Sheila Cockrell and it got really fiery. And so some people who supported her were like, Oh, you let me, she let Sheila Cockrell have it. And people who didn't, who were neutral, was like, Oh my goodness, is that the way you conduct yourself on TV? And so I don't think it's personality. Oh, Whatever, Sheila Cockrell. I do you know, you know television how I feel about it. No, I'm just I'm saying. Just, it's I'm, like, and but I'm just that's also about not social media. And what I'm sure. talking about yeah. is the mindset of voters. Yeah. So let's also and add think, the nuance that black women can't get loud. Yeah, they can't you know. get boisterous. They can't woman, be. But, but, I know. But you know, yeah. I mean, she was. But, but, but when you looked but, at it, it was her but, and Carol Weaver. Yeah. It was all of that. And so Carol Weaver is also a black woman. And I think that the question that people had was whether or not. This is a productive leadership quality. And I think yeah. you're right. There is a double standard when women do it. But I think even when a man does it, you have to say, can I get something done? And I think, and, and then, you know, listen, I voted for Nicole. I voted for Nicole. So too, yeah. this is me saying this. I voted for her. I'm trying to peel back the onion and say, well, why did some people not? And this is what I've heard. Yeah. And so it is not, to, it's not a personality thing. It is a leadership behavior thing and it can be changed. But I think that what people saw was um, some people and was something that did not necessarily reflect her ability or her skill set. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing I would just say too, is that like, you know, I, you know, you know, super, you know, we got a firewall. So legally, I don't know what's going on in the campaign. Um, you know, you know, I'm not super close. I know, know Nicole. So I'm not, you know, you know, having conversations about what's going on in their race. But what I will say is that um, so this is the, the big point I want to make is when you look across the board at, um, you know, the, the final t- turnout tally from the Anthony Adams election, the mayor's race. You look at the total from mm-hmm. the Denzel's race and then Nicole's, you know, it's roughly about the same statistically significant and roughly about the same number of turn uh, voters for each. And so we've got a little bubble, a population of folks who are fired up and who support that type of candidate or who want change, you know, across the board. And what it means for organizations like ours, for other like political organizations thinking about, like, how do you mo- how build a progressive block is how do you actually Bring that those folks that you're talking about who, you know, may not have supported Nicole, but may believe in some of the corporate accountability at work or may not support um, Janice Winfrey, but, you know, want to see more civic engagement. How do you, you know, or how do you bring the more of those folks on? And I think part of that work is at the end of the day that it's not what the candidate can do. It's what, you know, organizations like ours that step in that gap have to be able to do is you have to create and sort of cobble together a voting block. Because the candidate can only do so much. The candidate has to do, you know, has to carry the water. But we have to sort of like set and try to set the narrative and like reshape the terms of like what we are. Mm-hmm. What, what's the debate? Well, look, I'm going to try to look move us Coleman. forward. Just let me just say, say this quickly. Okay. Look at Coleman. Coleman lost badly to Duggan a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he came back 
and he polished his message. He polished himself and he reintroduced himself to voters. It is not just name recognition. He ran a smart campaign. When he came to Authentically Detroit last time, he was very smart. Last week. Yeah. He, last week, he was very smart. He, his, what he had to say Hello? was right, right on message. I think that really what needs to happen for a candidate like a Nicole, like a Denzel, and if Anthony Adams probably is not the person for mayor, and I only say that because I think it needs to be a younger person. I'll be honest with you. I think one of the issues is we need a fresh face running for mayor. But I think that reintroduce yourself so that you can move away from the caricature and people can get to know your heart and get to know who you are. If people have only seen you in one way and these battles have been taken place on social media, let people know you the other way. And so we have between now and the next election cycle to build those relationships. We talked about Rashida yep. Tlaib, who's a fighter, yep. but she's on the ground and people know her. She didn't introduce herself to people during a pandemic. She didn't run during a pandemic. If she ran, maybe it would be the caricatures about her that people were criticizing. Because when she has cursed, people have criticized her for some of what she's done, but people also know her heart. I think with progressive candidates, we just need to do more outreach above and beyond where we normally Agreed. are. And I also think you can't lead with your anger. I think you have to lead with your vision. This is where I think we need to be. Accountability is definitely something. But people also need to know what a Detroit you would create looks like. And I want to see that from all of the candidates who I think have so much promise and who somehow did not cross over this time. I, I want to, I, I, we got to move us on because we are running way long. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, really quick. Let's talk about district four and uh, then let's round it out around, you know, uh, a discussion around what uh, the balance, the check and balance of government in Detroit will look like with this new progressive leaning city council and our more centrist mayor. But this, District 4, Letitia Johnson was the top vote getter over former Free Press and Fox 2 reporter M.L. Elric. This, at our minds, Donna Givens-Davidson, was the race to watch. I mean, you know, Letitia has been doing the work. She's a volunteer. She's shown up. She's a really nice, approachable person. She's smart. She has a great deal of vision for what she wants to see happen. And people know her. M.L. Elric actually ran a smart campaign. He did outperformed what people thought he would do, certainly what I thought he would do. He did run a smart campaign. He but the reality well. is that you cannot run a campaign that outperforms knowing somebody like, you know, mm -hmm. Letitia. And also he has a track record and he has baggage that he will never get beyond with some people. Yep. I think also that there were times that some of his um, surrogates would come out there and be in the community saying and doing things that did not necessarily reflect well on him um everybody has circus but i think i've heard some things but i think ultimately letitia won this he didn't lose it she won because she is the right candidate for this moment and she has been working at this for a long time and i'm also going to point this out letitia this is not her first time at the rodeo either she's lost a she's few times lost a few yep. times and she learned how to win and that's what I say about a lot of candidates who have it when she when she lost. And I'm not saying this was her strategy. She licked her wounds. She went back serving the community and continued to build relationships so that when she ran again, she had connected to people all over District 4. And I think so. Hats off to Letitia. She's she she made us proud. Yeah, well, she we, we endorse um, Letitia. And I think one of the things that we thought was really important from her campaign was her willingness to uh, you, you brought this up earlier about like housing and like being really crisp on like, here's how we 
fight back and work on housing. So we're part of the um, Professor uh, Bernadette Etihune's, uh you know, coalition against illegal tax foreclosures. And she was one of the first people to sign our uh, commitment to like to find a way, find policies to re um, to pay back folks who've, who've been over assessed. You know, when we talked about uh, property, ta- you know, so property tax foreclosure, we talked about rental assistance, which is another key issue around um, our membership base and like how do we make sure people are able to stay in their homes if they're not homeowners but renters she was really clear and really crisp about what does it look like to make sure that we have policies like rights to counsel and that we are you know investing in you know more um, affordable and low-income housing and so I think you know going back to your point you know I, I think that that vision and and anger you know uh, you know are hand in hand it is a very much of a sort the sort of like way I've been taught organizing, but she was very crisp to offer a, the sort of perspective that you're, you're arguing is like, nope, here's our, our hopeful promising vision of how <laughs> we get through to, uh, you know, and build a, and build a better district for and build a better Detroit. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, for a number of voters, um, you know, that was inspiring. And I think at the end of the day, whether it's anger, cold anger, whether it's, uh, um, you know, whatever is that you have to inspire voters to for them to see the best of Detroit or what they want to see for their communities. And well, yeah, that was you talked about you talked about piercing hopelessness, and I think one of the ways you can pierce hopelessness is giving people hope. Right. Um, and uh, hope comes with a vision, and it comes with optimism, and it comes with that that crisp and clear message. And some people got it. Mm-hmm. Some people call you, it. you know, you want to be inspired, right? Because a person who is a fragile voter, a person who is an infrequent voter, when they hear all of the negatives, when they hear all of the anger, they may just give up and say, I'm not going. If you want them to come to the polls, you have to believe there's a reason to come and not remind them of all the reasons why they hate politics. And I think that Letitia's one who got it. I actually think that we have some good candidates. Like I said, I think that Coleman has it. I'm optimistic about this. Um, you know, I was listening to Charlie Beckham was on. Um, really? Detroit is different, I think. Oh, wow. And I, I listened to that. him and he said, you know, city council only does one thing. They um, pass ordinances and they approve budgets, but they don't do anything else. And I thought he really does not understand the oh, role no, of city council. Well, he served mayors for so many years. Oh, come on, Mr. Yep. Beckham. That's disappointing. But come on. He served mayors for so many years. He also had lots of wonderful things to say about the press. But he served mayors for so many years <laughs> that, um, you know, because I think that, you know, there's people who really get angry about um, political accountability. And when you've been in these positions of high power, sometimes accountability looks like people are prying. And the reality is that somebody's supposed to be looking at what you're doing. But I think when he said that he doesn't understand, or maybe he does, that city council members are supposed to approve contracts. They are supposed to control spending in so many ways. Appointments. Appointments. It's a check and balance. It's a check and balance. So what does that look like now? I think when they're doing their job, I think that we have six intelligent, seasoned people, even if they're not seasoned, well, not maybe not six intelligent seasoned people, but, you know, a good number of seasoned intelligence people. I can't say six because I can't vouch for all of them. There's some I don't know. I don't want to, no shade. I just don't know everybody. But the ones I know are seasoned and intelligent people. They have support from people who know things and they are connected to the yeah. communities they serve and they will not be a rubber stamp for this mayor. 
And that's what we really need. If you're not going to change Mayor, you're going to have to stop rubber stamping everything he does. We've had a number of decisions that seem to have gone through with no scrutiny, whether it's the ARPA dollars. And actually, Nicole gave a very good explanation for what's wrong with that. The ARPA she dollars was great have been, on yeah. last week's show. She, she was really amazing. Was. Yeah. She really was. And mm-hmm. when she talked about those ARPA dollars, I think that you have to look at that. I think that you have to look at the um, contracts for demolitions that are just flying through. Even when um, Brenda Jones talked about the law department and the fact that the corporation counsel Garcia has been, um, you know, that, that the, um, the inspector general's office. Yeah, that's in the news too. So much news. To, um, the, the, what's the, the, the legal, whatever for, uh, I can't think of the legal entity that controls attorneys. The, the bar, the, the, the Michigan the, bar. The bar association? Well, I think it's the Michigan bar. Okay. She referred to him for sanctions because she said that he is interfering with her right to do her job. Brenda Jones has been looking at that on her way out of office. She has been pointing out a few flaws. And so I think the city council has a lot of threads to pick up on and to bring about accountability. And I think it's going to happen. Yeah, and, and you know, I Detroit. think the one really thing, um, you know, hopeful thing that comes out of our um, new city council is, you know, there is going to be a lot of uh, wrangling, you know, on, you know, and, 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 you know, you know, battles on like what this city council's makeup looks like and how that, um, you know, we have an opportunity for this leadership to really exert itself. So mm-hmm. how do we make sure that that, that leadership exerts itself? One thing to you, to your and point, a little bit of a learning curve and a learning curve. And I think one thing that's important we think about like how to make sure that this this new incoming city council isn't a rubber stamp for the mayor's agenda is also making sure that it is also as an agenda for it is also not a rubber stamp for um, the corporate agenda as well. And I think that right. when we look at like, you know, our uh, our, you know, one of the things that I think for us at Detroit Action that we're really concerned about is that, you know, the top the top money raiser for this year's election was Scott Benson, who ran unopposed, and he was the top candidate for corporations. And you know, he's so, very development friendly, very corporate very friendly. But yes. everybody knows, and everybody and, knows, and everybody that. knows him, and, and everybody knows and, him. And, and Mary think, Sheffield is also there. And I think that, but I think that, like you know, he raised two point, um, you know, so not two point twenty two um, hundred twenty five thousand. You know, next in line was Gabby Santiago Herrera with a hundred hundred k or something. And so for us at Detroit Action, like it's how do you make sure that the the our corporate agenda isn't also just getting a rubber stamp. And that is one of the key things that we think about, like the mayor's agenda, the corporate agenda, making sure that it's actually a people agenda. Thank you. And that, <laughs> Peoples. And, and that they're able to, you know, exert their voice um, in the city council. So it's, it's going to be a steep learning curve. You know, communities have to do the work and we have to, you know, be able to make sure that we're pushing, exerting and holding accountable to make sure these people do what they said they're going to do. Yeah, people, people are going to look at it's going to be a learning curve. I think that, you know, sure, there's going to be a learning curve, sure. but yeah. I think that p- the people we've identified are more than capable. They're very capable. Of, and many of them have been um, studying this and, and, and they have people who are going to be able to train them and prepare them for this. Mm-hmm. Mary Sheffield is also in city council and now mm-hmm. she has a friendly city council yep. to work with her on a lot of the issues. She could not move forward. And I think that um, Scott Benson is unlikely to ascend to a leadership role in the city council. He is still under investigation and the feds is watching the feds. The feds are watching and you know what? Um, mm-hmm. They probably should be because yeah. when, when you look at, I'm just saying, when you look at a corporate agenda, the corporate agenda is not just campaign contributions. That corporate agenda happens all during the year. Correct. I don't trust our city council to not 
um, engage in the kind of relationships, cozy relationships with corporations, whether they cross the line or not, that should not exist. And I think our ethics need to be strengthened so that there is more of a firewall between a lot of these folks. Yeah. And that's something that Letitia, both Letitia and ML talked about. So I'm encouraged. People are going to look at the time step on this podcast and be like, what in the world? Listen, if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at Authentically Detroit at gmail.com. I tried y'all. I promise I did. But I got Brandon Snyder and Donna Gibbons Davis in here. There's no way we can keep it to an hour. So uh, a few shout outs. I want to shout out. Every single person who actually mustered up the courage and ran for office and actually campaigned and knocked doors, regardless of what your vision was, uh, regardless of what you believed, uh, we need people out there running for office. We need people participating in democracy. Shout out to uh, the poll workers who continue to be, in my opinion, the cornerstone of our democracy, right? Uh, The people who volunteer from the early hours of the morning into, you know, at the central counting board that night trying to tally up votes. And I want to shout out everyone who came on our show last week during our election, our live election episode, which was also our anniversary, one of our anniversary episode. No, it wasn't. It was 103. You know, um, they think it's one. Um, yeah. Buzzsprout thinks that we had 100, but they're wrong. Yeah, okay. So uh, Denzel McCampbell, Senator Adam Ollier, Letitia Johnson, Nicole Small, Eda Ford, Comey Young Jr., Tony McElwain, Hakeem, the People's Poet, and our Chief Storytelling Officer, Eric Thomas. Donnie, you got shout outs. Um, well, <laughs> you shouted out many people that I would have shouted out all of the candidates who won. I would shout out to the six city council people who are ascending to that office. I have confidence. All bets are on you. Um, we're going to try to get to know all of you and hopefully we can get all of you on the show. Yeah, let's get all the um, winners on Authentically Detroit. Let's get all the winners on Authentically Detroit. Um, I want to shout out all those people who voted absentee. People acted like if you were not at the polling place on election day, you didn't vote. I voted three weeks before it was due. <laughs> so, you know, it's not nine, nine, not nine. 1985 folks a lot of us <laughs> voted from home and that's why we changed the law so that we could vote from home i want to shout out to the staff of ecn who hosted the um the election forum and stayed up late and they were here all during the day trying to help people with elections um and i want to shout out the people at pace southeast michigan which is the organization that provides service to many seniors comprehensive services is soup to nuts and they are now taking care of my mother um you have really lessened my anxiety Brandon, do you have any shout outs? Yeah, so shout out to y'all. Thank y'all for inviting me. Um, you know, I really appreciate this. And we got another hour and a half in us, I believe. So, um, <laughs> we definitely got a part two. We yes, love talking about yes, this stuff. Yes. Um, shout out to, uh, you know, the greatest organizing staff in the city, in the country, in the world, uh, Detroit Action. Um, to our uh, allies like 482 Forward and We the People Michigan and Mothering Justice and Michigan United. Oh, our Mothering um, Justice. Shout out to Ebony. Shout yes. out to Ebony and Danielle. Yes, and Aisha. And, uh, you know, shout out to my parents, the Eastsiders, Lil Eastsiders 94 and Connors, just up the street. So, and then uh, my girlfriend, Naomi, who uh, puts up with me. You better Naomi shout out your girlfriend, Naomi. 
You better shot Cawthorn? No. Oh, oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Donna. <laughs> I met a Naomi Cawthorn yesterday, uh-huh. and so I didn't know. Not, not, not. You not better Naomi. shout out your boo Na- on the air. Naomi, I'm sorry. Naomi, the, the right, the right Naomi. So. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. Uh, and then, you know, last but never least, uh, shout out to my dog, Keisha, who I'm um, getting ready to walk when I get back home. All right. All, all right. right. We thank you all so much for listening, and we want you to catch the wave.